Lord, in these next few minutes, I want to uh, just ask that you will tune us into the Spirit, Lord. Pray that in the next few minutes that we can both experience the um, poverty that we have in our sinfulness and that we can enjoy the riches that we have in Christ. Lord, I know that that's got to be a divine work, and uh, I confess that I am insufficient to share either of those uh, without the influence of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives and speaking in spite of me. Lord, that's what we beg for this morning. We pray that you will communicate with your people. Lord, we uh, just turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Can someone hit that F button up there? Thank you. That fan will drive me crazy. <clears throat> like I just prayed just now, my burden this morning is that we will appreciate the riches that we have in Christ, but only after we have considered our poverty without Him. We can't fully, can't even really begin to appreciate the riches that we have in Christ but by focusing on and appreciating and recognizing the poverty that we have without Him. We're in John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. <clears throat> so Jesus was again, so, excuse me, so Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord... By this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. There's no imagery in John that's wasted in the book of John. In this passage here in John chapter 11, he's calling forth a dead man. He's been dead four days, a man stinking and decaying. Lazarus' deadness his decomposition and his stench resulting from his decomposition and his inability to do anything about that are images of our condition before and apart from Christ. The last few weeks, we've been really just bathing in this passage week after week and just seeing what God shows us. And over the last few weeks, he's shown us a series of observations that I've called them observations on the formerly smelly. I call us formally smelly because hopefully in Christ, if we are in Christ and we are in a relationship with Christ, then we've been called forth from that tomb. We've been unbound hand and foot. We've been cleaned up or in the process really of being cleaned up. And we no longer smell like the tomb, but instead we smell like Christ. We're an aroma of Christ to God. So I've referred to us as the formally smelly and over the last few weeks we've Engage these observations on the formerly smelly. First, that they're students of the stench of their own tombs. The formerly smelly engage their wickedness. 
the formerly smelly, recognize their evil and recognize our condition apart from Christ and they see themselves as smelly. Secondly, the formerly smelly know the singular reason that they don't smell any longer. It's not because of anything in us. It's because of the singular work of Christ that we don't smell any longer. His work on the cross, His empty tomb, is the singular work, singular reason that we don't smell any longer. The third thing, the observation of the formerly smelly, is that they don't, um, or they worship with their lives. They don't live in compartments. You know, if Jesus was an insurance agent, it might be appropriate to dabble in Him. If He was somebody that uh, just kind of helped us, gave, saved us from a non-hell status, you know, we might think that we could dabble in Him or maybe visit and engage Him maybe one day a week or maybe in one area of our lives. And the reality is that His Lordship, the finished work of Christ, what He does in our hearts, Him calling us forth from a tomb and then taking our place in that tomb via the cross creates this context or this setting where we don't live in compartments anymore where Christ invades every area of our lives and every day of our lives and our lives actually become the worship instrument church is not something that we do in that context church is something that we are whenever you begin to recognize that Fourth, we considered that the formerly smelly worship with a pierced, horse-trodden heart. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached at Pentecost, he preached in, in Jerusalem to these Israelites, and they're hearing this message where he's saying, you crucified this Jesus by the hands of sinful men. And it says they were pierced to the heart, and they responded with a life of worship from that pierced horse-trodden heart. What we considered that Sunday is that that's where real worship comes from. Heartbrokenness over our vileness and our wickedness. Heartbrokenness over the fact that we nailed him to the cross by the hands of sinful men. Fifth, we considered that the formerly smelly are surprised by grace. Grace has been called God's riches at Christ's expense. It's also been referred to a place and an occasion where the judge, our judge, became our Savior. And I defined it that week. My version of grace was that the worthless was purchased with the priceless. That's grace. And the formerly smelly are shocked by that and surprised by that. And we're left um, flabbergasted, really. And then last week, we considered that the formerly smelly are content in their station in Lot. It's not so much about stuff. Usually a contentment message has to do with stuff. But really, this contentment message this last week had to do with where you are in life. The relationships that he's placed you in. The physical body that he's placed you in. The family and the family dynamics that he's placed you in. That we are content in our lot and our station in life. The formerly smelly, these were subheadings of last week. The formerly smelly know that they are nothing. The formerly smelly know that they can do nothing, that they deserve nothing, that they're worse than nothing, and if they perish, there will be no great loss. 
If you weren't here last week, I urge you to listen to that message. You may find that hard to believe that we can engage those sort of things as truths. But I assure you, if you listen to last week's message, you'll hear that that's bathed in Scripture. Passage after passage points, points to those realities. What we realized last week is how contentment comes from that is this crazy kingdom shocker is that when we take our eyes off our station in Lot and we engage Christ, when we stop wrestling with those things and we stop grappling with them and grumbling about them and stop focusing on them and we just say, okay, I'll let them do the terrible work that they're going to do and turn me Christward. And you begin to engage Christ and feast on Him and drink of Him. Then when you come back to that station in Lot, things have changed. Either the station and lot have changed, or we've changed. And I don't know which, or maybe both, but who cares? It's just better. Contentment comes once you've engaged the smelly tomb, and then you've recognized the finished work of Christ. Today, I'm preaching on something that truly wipes me out. I, feel, I don't feel like I've been as unqualified to preach in three years as I am this morning. And I wish I wasn't here, frankly. I'm preaching on humility. I'm not an expert on humility. I'm an expert on pride. If I was to preach on pride this morning, which that will come into play, and then you may hear a little bit more enthusiasm from me in that area. But in regards to humility, I'm humbled by the terrible task to expose this. Because it's not something that's fully manifest in me. And I'm ashamed of that. What is genuine humility? I had to call in an expert. The guy's name is Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the 1700s. He's a man that led the Great Awakening. He's dead, which is the only reason that we can talk and refer to him. He, you have to have a dead guy. Uh, turn me down a little bit. I feel like I have to whisper in order to not shout people out of here. Okay. Jonathan Edwards, here's what he said. In regards to himself, which this, to me, qualifies him. Not this, among other things, but this characterizes and kind of summarizes his personality. He said, What a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor worm am I when pride works. Okay, we may be talking to an expert here. Let me, let me add some more credibility to this guy, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards... He led, or the Lord used him to um, create what was called the Great Awakening, the 1700s in the New England area. Um, Jonathan Edwards had the crazy privilege of seeing many people, many thousands of people come to Christ. He was not a dynamic preacher. Supposedly he just read his sermons, kind of a monotone voice, and people were falling out in the aisles. I mean, they were just, just broken over how God was using this guy. But then he had the, the cool privilege on top of that, not only to see thousands of people come to faith, but to pastor them for years after that. So what he did in response to what God showed him in that, in the years of pastoring these people, is he wrote a book that's called Religious Affections. In this book, Religious Affections, he presents 12 things that seem to be sure evidence of a true saving relationship with Christ. And then 12 things that are no sure sign of true religious affections. He even bathes the whole thing in humility and says, I, you know, I, I don't have access to man's heart, only God knows man's heart, but in, in pastoring people that have supposedly come to Christ, 
and, and observing fruit or the lack thereof, and things that are present in certain, certain lives that aren't in others, he wrote this book. And this book, it, it's like swimming in molasses when you try to read it. But if you're able to wade through it, there are riches in there. Here's something that he said in this book in regards to humility. He said, humility, it is a man's mean esteem of himself as in himself nothing and altogether contemptible and odious. Isn't that a good word? Odious. It just reminds me of Lazarus, four days dead. Odious. Reminds me of self, myself. The more and more I spend time in this book, this Bible, that really functions as a mirror, I see myself as odious. It's a man's mean esteem of himself as in himself nothing, and altogether contemptible and odious. And this is attended with a mortification, basically almost like a murdering, of a disposition to exalt himself. As a result of rec recognizing who we really are, our vileness, and recognizing ourselves as odious, that we mortify our natural disposi disposition to exalt ourselves and lift ourselves up, and a free renunciation of his own glory. I enjoyed that. It's about three-quarters of what he goes on to explain in chapter after chapter. But here's something that he shares that I think will help us in the next few minutes to understand genuine humility and what it truly is. He presents two types of humility. One is called legal humility and one evangelical humility. Legal humility. There's a great picture of it in the book of Philippians you don't need to turn there because it's probably a pretty familiar passage, but you may jot it down on your notes there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In there, we're told, Paul writes, he says, Every knee will bow at the name of Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if you've read that before, you may be like me and you're going, Well, wait a second. There's a bunch of people that reject Christ. How's that going to work? Here's how that's going to work. Here's a picture of legal humility. At the great white throne judgment at the end of the ages, when every human stands before God, trust this, know this, that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Some will confess him as their Lord, and some will just confess that, oh, he is who he says he was. That is where um, you will see legal humility. Legal humility is basically what drives people to their knees is when sinfulness stands before holiness. In fact, it doesn't stand. It falls to its knees. That's legal humility. Legal humility is basically just being caught. Okay, now we're going to develop evangelical humility, then we'll come back to this. Evangelical humility is the same humility of being caught. Legal humility plus something. You see your guilt... You see that you are sinful before a holy God and you desperately want to do something about it. That's evangelical humility. I want to show you a picture of this. Turn to Acts chapter 2. It's on page 910 of your pew Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. <clears throat> 
I referred to this passage at the beginning of the message this morning because it's one that we bathed in before when we found this pierced, horse-trodden heart as being the source of worship. But I want you to see something else here. We're going to start in verse 36. This is Pentecost. This is Peter preaching in Jerusalem seven weeks or so after Christ has been crucified. Verse 36, he says, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen to how these guys respond. Now when they heard this, when they heard what? Jesus whom you crucified? They heard the story of Christ. Okay, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, but then they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Go on further. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Not only did they recognize their guilt, but there's answerability in there. There's answerability in that they asked Peter and the other apostles first, what shall we do? And then secondly... They repented and believed and were baptized. And then third, they devoted themselves to the things that are critical in responding appropriately to that cross. That's answerable, genuine, evangelical humility. Now let me contrast the two this way. Let me kind of summarize what this is. Legal and evangelical humility, the difference between the two. Legal humility is just getting caught, seeing your sinfulness and smelling your stench. But here's evangelical. But having an answerable frame of heart. It's like the difference between remorse and repentance. I see remorse frequently. I don't do a whole lot of counseling right now. The plurality of leadership that we have here has spared me. Um, from volumes of time counseling, but in times where I have done a focused period of counseling in people's lives, people that are going through crisis, or in times where at the end of a worship service, a lot of times I have somebody come up just weeping and broken. And sometimes when I spend some time with those folks and I begin to ask some questions, what I find out there is remorse, not repentance. See, remorse is like legal humiliation where you see yourself as broken, you see your life as a wreck, you see yourself as sinful, but you're not quite answerable yet. See, that's repentance. That's the difference between remorse and repentance. The repentant are answerable and want to reckon with that. It's like the difference between being broken over the consequences of sin and being mortified over sinning against the holy God and wanting to make it right with that holy God. There's a big, fat difference. Real, genuine, biblical humility comes from a recognition of your condition apart from Christ and an earnest, God-given desire to reckon with that condition. And in that rich, 
loamy, fertilized soil of reckoning, then the message of Christ crucified and risen finds purchase. From the stench comes a lowliness that just begins to put in perspective the highliness of Christ. I've thought about what this might look like. I try and think of things in illustrations and try and think of what uh, something that we can all relate to. And The way I've thought about it is like using a telescope. If we want to gaze at the heavens and the glories of the heavens with a telescope, and we come up to a telescope, but we want to stand at the side of it and think that we can appreciate the glories that it points to, we can't do that. That telescope is not valuable to us. We cannot utilize that telescope until we put our eye right up to the lens. And what I'm saying here is that we have to put our eye up to the lens of our vileness to appreciate His glory. If you think you can appreciate the heavens without putting your eye through the lens of your wickedness, you've missed it. Here's the beauty in all this, in this recognition of our vileness and the pursuit of true humility, is that God loves answerable humility. I don't mean He just likes it. I mean He loves it. We're going to go on a little journey through the Scriptures right now. Turn to page 625 of your pew Bible. If you don't have a pew Bible, then turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. We're going to go on a little journey here through the Word see what this big, rich book has to say about humility, answerable humility. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look. Okay, who's this one? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. You can almost interject pierced of heart to the one who recognizes their vile condition and who trembles at my word. He pays attention to the humble and contrite who tremble at this mirror, who step before this book and they tremble and they recognize their sinfulness. He comes to those, he pays attention to those his eyes are on those. Turn to James chapter 4, verse 6. It's on page 1013 of your pew Bible. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So far, just in two passages, we see that those who are answerably humble, those who have evangelical humility, that they are gazed on, that they get God's attention, and that they also get God's grace. Turn to Luke chapter 7, page 863 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 7. I want to tell you, too, as you're turning there, that one of the reasons that I feel so pitiful this morning is because I feel like this is probably the biggest problem of a Christian church, what I'm talking about today, is that we think we deserve God. 
We think we got our church on. We're faithful church members after all. And we're respectable. And we think we deserve God. And we think that um, he's kind of rightfully ours. And I'm talking about me. If you think I'm picking on other churches, I'm talking about me. The fact that I'm not more often broken before the living God. The fact that I see people that could sleep through a message where that word is unpacked. That breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart when I see that sort of reality in me too. I feel like this, of the things we've engaged on this, this, this He Stinketh series, this is the most important This deals with humility, the thing that he loves the most, and it deals with pride, the things that he hates the most. And in one morning, in the next few minutes, through unpacking these passages, we have an opportunity to be broken. And I urge you, don't let routine of Sunday morning rob you of the gravity of these words we're about to engage. Luke chapter 7. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save his life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. Who's worthy? The centurion is. He's a great guy, Jesus. In the eyes of the world, this guy's a stud. He's a great citizen, a great neighbor. He's a leader. And in verse 5, he loves our nation, so he's a patriot too. Awesome. And it was he who built our synagogue. Man, he's even a team player. In verse 6, now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. These are words from the centurion, the stud, the great neighbor, the team player, the patriot. Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. I think he marveled because of his humility. There were other people that said, oh, you don't need to come to my house to heal somebody. And he didn't marvel at that. I think he marveled at the combination of humility and faith in this man. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This man was worthy of Jesus in the eyes of the world, even in the eyes of his pals. But in his own eyes, don't even step foot in my house. I'm unworthy. Jesus loved that in him. Turn to Matthew chapter 15, page 821. Matthew chapter 15. These next two passages we're about to engage are my favorite discoveries in this preparation for this message. And I just, I've been aching to share them with you for the last few weeks. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. <clears throat> and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. 
But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, i.e., not you, Canaanite woman. Then in verse 25, But she came, this Canaanite woman, and began to bow down before him. Look at her physical posture. She bowed down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children there are Israel. The bread is himself. He's calling her a dog. Man, if there was ever occasion for anybody to be self-righteous, how dare you, Jesus? I'm no dog. I'm a respectable Canaanite woman. And he refers to her as a dog. But here's how she responds. And Jesus loves it, let me tell you. Here's how she responds. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Jesus loves dogs. I'm going to show you another example of that. 2 Samuel, page 260 of your pew Bible or your ESV. 2 Samuel. Chapter 9. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I'll tell you why. is because uh, not long after we moved here, a bunch of the kids got together. Samantha helped the, the kids, and I think uh, um, some other folks helped out with this, Karen. And the kids acted out this play, a story of Mephibosheth. My son Luke was Mephibosheth. And uh, um, Noah was Zeba, right, Noah? Were you Zeba? Okay, who was Zeba? Evan? Okay, all right, all right. But it was just the coolest little play to know these kids were eating this story. But this story came to mind because of that imagery that they had planted there. And look and listen to this. David. It's the story of David and a guy named Mephibosheth. Chapter 9 says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let me stop you before I proceed. David has now become king of, his, of Judah. Okay, Saul has um, actually died in battle. Jonathan, his son, died in the same battle. And then David has taken the throne, or as he has assumed the, the, the rule of Judah. And you need to know that rightfully, in those times, when someone took a, a kingship, that the old dynasty was rightfully put to death. Every last one of them. It was the norm. In fact, it was expected when someone, a new king came in, that the old dynasty and every family member was killed so that they couldn't reassume the throne, so they couldn't get it back. So here, rightfully, Mephibosheth, who you're about to meet in a minute, should have died. But listen to what happened. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom... I may show the kindness of God. That's why this is an example of what we've just seen where Jesus interacted with this Canaanite woman. You've seen the same character of God in what you're about to see in David. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. You see his physical posture? He prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and he said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given, I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, that's hard, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Have you, have you missed that? He ate at the t- king's table regularly. And now just to add emphasis to his terrible condition, now, he was lame in both feet, in case you forgot that, too. guy that was rightfully dead recognizes himself as a dog. And David demonstrates the kindness of God, that God loves dogs. I want to ask you to think about something. Do you see yourself as a dog? Serious. You see yourself as unworthy? And undeserving? Do you see yourself as vile, as lesser and lower and dependent and needy? If you do, you should know that He loves that. God loves that. He pays attention to that. He gives grace to that. He reckons faith to that. And he escorts that to the king's table. Come on up here, dogs. Come have some crumbs. That's a beautiful picture of humility. If you see that in yourself, and you say, I got that mastered, then I got news for you, you don't. (laughs) Really, if you see it in yourself really at all, then I, I would question whether you really have it. If you don't see that in yourself and recognize your doggedness, then you're proud and you don't have a good picture of who you are and what you've done or of His holiness, His grace, and His love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you need to know that He hates pride. Proverbs 6, He hates haughty eyes. Proverbs 8, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. 
Proverbs 16, the proud are an abomination to the Lord. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. You know, I think the one that gives me breath, the one that hung the stars, the one that created the very ground that we stand on, the one that created the atmosphere that we take breath from, if he opposes something, I'm thinking that's a bad thing. And I'm thinking that's something that I want to avoid. Proverbs 16, 8, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That he will destroy pride. And he will cause to stumble the haughty spirit. If you're not urgent about the issues of humility and pride, which I confess to you that I have not been, I confess to you that it's easy to talk about, it's easy to conceptualize, but when you actually try and do it, then things get hard. But if you're urgent about the issues of humility and pride, and if you recognize that it matters to God, that He loves humility and that He hates pride, if you can acknowledge that and recognize that, I want to offer this to you. Pride is easy and comes very naturally. Know that. You don't have to work at pride. It is really at the root of all sin. When Lucifer fell, the morning star when he fell. The story is in Isaiah chapter 14. In that passage, it says that he wanted to be higher than God. He wanted to replace God. That's the first sin. And that's, where, that's what it was. Pride. I don't need you, God. In fact, I want to replace you. And the first human sin, when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and the serpent says, hey, Eve, come here. Have a bite. She says, no, God says, if I eat of that, then I'll surely die. He said, you'll not surely die. God doesn't want you to eat of that because you'll be like him. And that appealed to her because it was pride at the heart of it. And she took and ate. So it's not a matter of if pride exists. It's a matter of when and where and how it will be expressed in every single one of us. God, in His perfect timing in these last few weeks, has uh, taught me, kind of given me a crash course in some issues having to do with this. Another reason that I feel especially uh, unworthy to preach this message. If I felt worthy, I probably wouldn't be. I just want to point that out, but I, somebody pointed that out to me this morning. But I had a good friend um, who told me this last week that over a period of time and how I was interacting with him, that he felt like I was kind of work, working from and operating from the flesh. And he told me that he felt like I had an anger problem. And my initial response, my immediate response, was self-righteousness and to defend myself. And the reality is, maybe I was. If I'm spending time in this book, then maybe if I was truly lowly, then I would have gone, you know, maybe you're right. Where have you seen that? Oh, man, let me be repentant in that area. Let me receive that and not think so highly of myself. Pride comes so naturally. And for me in that situation, pride reared its ugly head and I defended myself vigorously. And I've been um, regretful about that ever since. I'm going to give you an example of how pride can creep up. 
places you never realize. I meet with the staff uh, on weekdays in the mornings, and um, we pray for you individually. We pray for your families. Uh, we pray for other churches in the community. We pray for our church, Cross Point. And I was sharing with these guys these discoveries. This was about two months ago. I was sharing with them these discoveries of the He Stinketh series. You know, I was just seeing this thing develop, and, man, you got it. It's like burning within you, and you're so excited to share it. So I'm sharing it with the staff, and we spent some time talking about specifically the issue of humility. And then we began our prayer time. And during my prayer, during my portion of prayer, here's what I prayed. I said, Lord, make Crosspoint known as the most humble church in this community. <laughs> and it was the next day before I realized what I had done. And I thought, Lord, how pitiful am I? How pitiful. Lord, make us known as the most humble church in our community. Isn't that ironic? That's a prime example that pride comes so naturally if we'll just look in the mirror. But humility, on the other hand, is otherworldly. At the point that you think you've achieved it, you demonstrate and prove that you don't have it. I was counseling with a man one time that he leaned across the table and he looked at me and said, I'm the most humble person I know. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you just proved that you were the contrary. So how do we get this uncommon, otherworldly thing, humility? John the Baptist, I didn't shave today. and I, I never shave when I talk about John the Baptist. So if you ever see me not shaving, it's because I'm going to say something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist made this statement. It was in a passage of Scripture where the other, his disciples come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, check it out. Or, uh, hey, John, the bee. I don't know if they called him the Baptist. John, check it out. Jesus is baptizing a bunch of people over across the way. He's kind of stealing some of your thunder, some of your glory. How about that? And John goes to explain, Man, I'm unworthy to even untie the thongs of his sandals. But he goes on to say something that summarizes how we find humility. And it summarizes this whole passage. It really summarizes the whole He Stinketh series. He made a statement. He said this, I must decrease and he must increase. I must decrease by the daily regular engagement of this word that's a mirror that says, Ooh, I'm vile. And he must increase where his glory and his holiness are revealed where I go, Oh, He's awesome. And I began to look through that lens of my stench. I'll leave you with a quote from Charles Simeon. You're going to meet him next week, not physically. He's been dead a long time, but we're going to hear from him next week. He's a man that embodied humility, and I think it's, um, it's cool for us to engage some real-life examples of what we're hearing. Scott shared this quote. I'm going to share it again. I want you to listen to this in light of the message. Charles Simeon, he was a pastor of a church in Cambridge for a long time. And I can't wait to share with you that story next week. But his life pursuit was to grow downward. Here's what he said. There are but two objects that I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. 40 years of him being a Christian. The one is my own vileness. I must decrease, 
And the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He must increase. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. Listen, he goes on. By constantly, not sometimes, not occasionally, but constantly meditating on the goodness of God and on our great deliverance from that punishment which our sins deserved, we are brought to feel our vileness and utter unworthiness. And while we continue in this spirit of self-degradation, everything else will go on easily. He's saying that's the main thing. Everything else will fall into place. We shall find ourselves advancing in our course. We shall find the presence of God. We shall experience His love. We shall live in the enjoyment of His favor and in the hope of His glory. He says, you often feel that your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling. Sound familiar? You often feel that your prayers scarcely reach the ceiling, but oh, get into this humble spirit by considering how good the Lord is and how evil you are. And then prayer will mount on wings of faith to heaven. The sign, the groan of a broken heart will soon go through the ceiling up to heaven. A, into the very bosom of God. That's rich. Let's pray. Lord, I want to uh, pray on behalf of this body corporately that you work in us the, the terrible work of humility so that you can be high and lifted up. Lord, I don't want us to be known as that. I just want us to be that. And Lord, I know the terrible work involved in humiliating us, but I ask you to bring it on. If it means you being higher and more glorified and more appreciated and more savored and worshipped, and enjoyed, Lord, then do that to us individually and do it to us as families and do it to us corporately, Lord. Lay us low. Lay us low. Pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's worship.